what we want to do is celebrate Easter with Elijah. And you say, how do we do that? Well, the Easter story, the resurrection story, is part of a greater story of redemption. So I want you to check, check, check out this video and uh, think in terms of how, where your story is, what chapter you are in. The Sri Lankan church has a very dark chapter this morning, but it's not the whole story. And so your life may be in a very dark place, but it's not the whole story. Your story is a part and can be a part of his greater story. So let's take a look at this. Our story is Adam and Eve's story. We were hiding in the garden, making excuses for our sin, unable to cover up our shame. Our story is Jonah's story. We were running from God, denying our calling, surrounded by a raging sea. Our story is a prodigal son story. We were wasting our blessings, lost in our failures, too afraid to return home. Our story is Peter's story. We were unbelieving, full of fear and doubt, our faith slowly sinking beneath the waves. But that is not the end of our story. We are all longing to be restored. We want to stop running. We want to be found. We want to believe, and we are crying out for a Savior. So God stepped in into a broken world, into human form, into our very lives. God stepped into our mess, into our sin, into our failure, our fear, our doubt. He stepped into death. And the door shut behind him. He arose and left it all in the grave. He wiped clean our story and started writing a new one. One without shame, without fear, without death. A story full of love and forgiveness. A story of redemption and restoration. It's our life story. It's His story. It's a resurrection story. Amen. Amen. And that's the story we want to see. I want you to see this morning that Elijah's story is our story. Israel's story is our story. And you're going to see that even in the Old Testament with Elijah, there is a resurrection story. But because we live in a day of social media and contact around the world, here is a message from Terry Unruh. Thank you, Randy. Been a challenging day. Services interrupted and bomb going off close to church about eight blocks away. All our folks are really well. Really appreciate you all and the church, Terry. So, praise God. But you see why our prayers all the time 
are so important. Amen? And uh, that could have been their church. That could have been their church. So let's continue to pray. God, help us today to listen to what you have. Well, here's what we're going to do. Look at your notes. We're going to travel back in time and celebrate Easter with Elijah as he faces 850 prophets of Baal for a spiritual smackdown on Mount Carmel. Now, if you're just joining us this morning, we're welcoming you, glad you are here. We've been going through the life of Elijah, and we've been covering chapter 17. And those maps there, I just wanted to give you that to just kind of see how much traveling Elijah has done. Not in his Mercedes, not by Uber, Jim, but by his own feet, by walking right there. And uh, he, he's traveled about 50 miles in the first seven uh, verses of chapter 17 uh, to get from Samaria in front of King Ahab to the brook Kareth. And then another 100 miles where he went from Kareth up to Zarephath. He was by the brook for about a year. He was in Zarephath living with the widow and her son that he raised from the dead for over two years. And now he's going from Zarephath, he's going down south to Mount Carmel. And that's where we're going to be today in chapter 18. In fact, it's almost all of chapter 18. And it's after three and a half years of drought. And so chapter 18 as we saw last week, begins with a prologue. I had to look up, what's a prologue? I always see that. It's like, what is it? Well, I I saw a great definition of it. A prologue is a story before the story. It's a little story before the big story that gives you information that you need to better appreciate the bigger story. And so we're going to start with that, but we're not going to go over it heavy. If you missed that, you can go online to wearelifebridge.com. You can go to the New Life Messages, download the notes, and I'd encourage you to listen to that. It was very encouraging to me. But today, we're at Mount Carmel, and we are going to see a spiritual smackdown that's going to settle this question. Who is the real God? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? Is it the true God of Israel or is it the false God of Baal and the apostate king Ahab? And really what we're going to see that actually the resurrection is its own spiritual smackdown to answer this question. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and if you don't borrow off of someone next to you, turn to chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to just dive in. We'll read the passage as we go along. And uh, the first thing that I want you to see, I just want to talk a little bit about the question before the smackdown, okay? The question before the smackdown. And that's our the lesson that we did last week. It's the story of Obadiah, and it's the first 16 verses of the chapter. And Obadiah settles the question of whom he's going to serve. Because we said last week, everybody's got to serve somebody. And that's why God inserted this prologue, the story before the story. Because you can get so caught up in fire coming down from heaven and the slain and the killing of 850 false prophets and Israel standing in amazement and shouting, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah with his courage, one man against 850. And we can lose ourselves 
and the fact that we all have to make this decision that Obadiah did. The question before us, the question before Israel, the question that the resurrection puts before us, is it's a choice that we all must eventually make. Will we be sold out in serving the Lord, or are we going to be a sellout? That was the question. That's the whole purpose of the prologue. Are you sold out, or are you a sellout in serving the Lord? You say, well, I want to be somewhere in between. Because that's where most of us want to be. Because who wants to say, I'm a sellout? And who wants, though, to risk being sold out for the Lord? And yet, Obadiah made the right choice. Now, the question is, will the rest of Israel, and the question for us this morning, what question, you know, how, how have we answered that question? So let's look at the bigger story, and that's where we want to concentrate. So look at verse 17. The bigger story is about the spiritual smackdown between the true God and the false god Baal. It begins in, in uh, the passage of verses 17 through 20 with God's prophet Elijah meeting his nemesis, the apostate king Ahab. And here's what I want you to see about these verses. This is the preparation for the spiritual smackdown. This is the preparation that comes before. So let's look at it. Verses 17 through 20 of chapter 18. It came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. As we will see, Baal is the male God, the master, the storm god, and Asherah is the female goddess who was always his companion, his cohort. And so together there's 850 what will be called prophets of Baal. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, what is he thinking? Well, we don't know. Because Elijah hasn't told him his purpose, he just gave a command, and Ahab followed. Which is interesting, because who was the king? Ahab was the king. Who should be given the orders? Ahab should be given the orders. So here's what I want you to see. These verses help us answer two questions. And the two questions are this. Who is causing the trouble for Israel? Who has caused this devastating three and a half years of drought and famine? And who is in charge of Israel? Who is in charge? Because when you're living in the worst of times, and I don't think I need to repeat how we started this day, we are living in the worst of times, and bad things do happen. Well, who's in charge? Who's in charge? So these are the two questions. So let's look at it. Who is causing the trouble for Israel? Who is causing the trouble for Israel? And we see in verses 17 and 18 that first of all, Ahab makes a false accusation. 
Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Now, you've got to understand what troubler means. You know, it doesn't sound good, right? We know it doesn't sound good. But what does it mean? It means one who has done evil that brings a curse on everyone around them. It's someone who has done evil who brings a curse on everyone around them. Now, you can imagine King Ahab, the apostate, and Jezebel, his wicked wife, and their 850 prophets, for three and a half years, his kingdom has endured this unbelievable severe famine due to three and a half years of no rain. And let me tell you, every day they talked about the troubler of Israel. Every day. And this is what happens. You have anybody who ever does you wrong? After a while, you don't call them by their name. You call them by some slanderous name that the jerk he you know the the guy at work becomes known as the jerk and everybody knows who you're talking about because he's the troubler right sometimes that person may be your spouse you know or or a family member or even someone at church but here's what's going on there's for three and a half years they've been talking about the troubler the troubler why are we starving it's because of the troubler Why is there no rain? It's because of that troubler. Why are people dying? It's because of the troubler. Elijah has done wickedness that has caused curse on all of us. And of course, in some ways, Ahab was partially right because in the first verse of chapter 17, Elijah had confronted him and said, look, there's going to be three and a half years of no rain and it will not rain except at my word. The only problem was... It wasn't due to his wickedness, it was, done, it was due to whose wickedness? Ahab's wickedness, right? And that of Israel. And so, Elijah gives the true accusation in verse 18. He counters the false accusation and he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. And of course, many weeks ago, we talked about Omri, his father, who was the biggest sinner in all of Israel, of all the wicked kings. And yet his son Ahab considered Omri's sin to be nothing and outsend him. And so Ahab won the biggest sinner contest. And we see here that he accuses Ahab and his father of being apostates because apostates always do two things. They forsake the commandments of the Lord and they follow after false gods. They forsake the true God that they knew. They forsake His Word and they forsake Him and they put in His place false gods. And so they forsook Yahweh and in their place they put Baal. But people are doing this today more than ever. I have never been so concerned and so burdened for our younger generation who are becoming apostates. Now, will they end up that way? I don't know. But they are forsaking the God of the Bible that they know and they have been taught. And they are replacing it with the foolishness of the world. Whether that be... I, I just, I, it just doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter what you replace them with. Either you're a sold out or you're a, a sellout. And so he says... This is the evil trouble that has brought God's curse down on this nation. But look at the next two verses and see that the second question is answered. 
Who is in charge of Israel? Who is in charge? Well, I'll tell you who's in charge. It's the one who is always in charge. Yahweh, the Lord who is over all and his prophet who speaks his word. Because it's ironic, you know, hey, you troubler of Israel, you wicked guy that's causing all this trouble. And Elijah says, let me uh, set this straight. It's not me, it's you. And let me start giving you some orders. And you know what Ahab does? He obeys. He obeys. And that's just the way it works. Churches can be bombed in Sri Lanka. Uh, Tragedy can happen. But God is sovereign and His Word is being fulfilled. And that's where our focus has to be. Because if you look at the people who are falling away, you will be tempted to fall away. If you look at the people falling away, you'll get the Elijah syndrome that we're going to see in the weeks to come. I am the only one in Israel that is faithful. And yet there were 7,000. And so who's in charge? The good news is the one who is always in charge, even in the worst of times, the Lord by the power of his sovereign word. And so he says, gather. And guess what? Elijah hasn't been running around counting prophets. God's told him how many prophets there are. 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah, 850 total, and they ate at Jezebel's table. You talk about, I can't get into this too deeply, but we're in a severe famine, and yet these guys are being fed. They're being fed by Jezebel. But God's been taking care of his man too. God's been taking care of the loyal remnant. Not feasting high and wonderfully of the world's bounty, but taking care of them day by day. And he'll take care of you and I if we'll remain loyal in, the, in, in times of apostasy. So here's what's happening. A spiritual smackdown will settle the question of who is the cause and who is in charge. See, we don't have to take Elijah's word. We're going to be able to take God's word. God's going to prove it. It's not what one man says to another man. It's what God says. Amen? And what God demonstrates and proves and reveals. Now, notice that Elijah does not explain what's going to happen to this apostate king. He doesn't need to know because he's not in charge. He simply needs to follow orders of the one who is in charge, the Lord and his prophet. And so Ahab obeys the command and gathers all of Israel and gathers all the prophets of Baal there at Mount Carmel. So who's coming to the smackdown? Two groups of people. You've got all of Israel. And you've got 850 prophets, false prophets of Baal. Where's the smackdown taking place? I have a picture there of the view from Mount Carmel overlooking the ocean. And we're going to see next week, this is the view that Elijah had when he prayed that rain would return to the land. But here's what I want you to know about Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel means, Carmel means garden land. It literally means garden land, fertile land, because this mountain range that you can see where it was located by the map up there at the top of your page was a fertile land that in the Bible, when the Bible would mention Mount Carmel, it would use it as a metaphor for fertility, for prosperity, for beauty, for majesty. It was just this glorious mountain range. And because Baal was supposed to be the god of fertility, Baal worshipers and Baal prophets would go to Mount Carmel 
and they would build false altars to this God, supposed God of fertility. And I don't know this for the fact, but I suspect that this area, because it was near the ocean and it was so fertile, it was probably still abundant with, with, uh, with uh, there was water in its limestone hills. They would build grottos there and collect water. So it was probably still prosperous, probably still fertile. So it was probably a place where Baal worshipers would say, well, look, everything's devastated, but our God's still taking care of this area, okay? And so it's like a little Eden. It's a false Eden. They're building this garden. Garden land, and by the way, Carmel would also often have the definite article, so it was called the Garden Land. It was the ultimate place of fertility. What's interesting, though, is we're going to see that in this place there used to be an altar to the true God Yahweh, but once they became apostate, they broke that altar down. They built another one to Baal, and they worshipped this God of fertility with sexual immorality, with child sacrifices. This is a wicked, ungodly worship. It's a demonic-driven worship. It's replacing the true God with man-centered, demon-centered worship. And this place had plenty of places to hide, plenty of grottos. It's just, it really sounds like a fascinating place. Now, the stage is set for the confrontation. So let's look at that. The confrontation takes place. Famine all around, and yet here's this kind of Eden paradise oasis of fertility. The question is, should it cause us to worship the God of fertility, Baal? Or should we recognize that the true God is God over fertility and times of, of, of lack, times of tragedy. See, we don't serve, as we've already noticed a couple weeks ago, we don't serve a prosperity gospel. We serve a God who's God in the high times and in the low times, in the abundance and when things are lacking, in life and a God who is Lord in death. So let's take a look at the confrontation at the spiritual smackdown. So let's look at, begin verse 21. Israel's gathered. Elijah came near to all the people. Now please circle came near in your Bible. Because this is a big sign of God's grace. God coming near, a, 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 as we're going to see, a compromising, even an apostate people. God comes near in His prophet. How gracious to come. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. And if Baal, follow Him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Now, we knew, he already knew from Obadiah there was a hundred that Obadiah hid. But what he's saying, it's probably a little bit of both. The Elijah complex, I alone. But also, he's, those guys are hidden, so they're not able to conduct a smackdown. He's the one that's there, and he's there by himself. I alone am left prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. Now let them give us two oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire underneath it. 
And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put fire underneath it. Then you call the prophets of Baal on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, that's a good idea. Literally in Hebrew, it's two words. Good word. That's a good word. Good word. Now, it's interesting. When he confronts them about their compromise, what do we hear? Silence. See, they're not ready to repent. They're not ready to confess. It's silence. And then he says, well, let's do this spiritual smackdown. And they're like, hey, that sounds really good. Good word. Again, not admitting their guilt. So let's take a look at it. First of all, Elijah confronts the fence-sitters with the problem of their compromise. The first thing he says to the people, he doesn't mince words, he confronts the fence-sitters with the problem of their compromise, and he, but he comes near to them. So this is a message of grace. Confrontation is not contrary to grace. Gracious people confront. Not all confrontation is gracious. This is both. Are you with me? Here's Israel's problem. They're sitting on the fence with a lame commitment to the Lord. That's what he says. He says, why, why do you hesitate between two opinions? Why are you indecisive? Why are you teetering on the fence? Sometimes towards the Lord, sometimes towards Baal. And the word for hesitate literally means lame. Basically, he's saying you guys are lame because compromise is always lame. Lukewarmness is always lame. In fact, the world doesn't appreciate lukewarm Christians, and Christians don't appreciate lukewarm Christians. Are you with me? And so the idea is this. You try to serve the Lord, but you're lame. you still got a foot in the world. Are you with me? And then you try to hang out with the world, but you always got this guilty conscience hanging on you, and you don't fully indulge, and yet you're still dabbling. So let me ask you, where are you this morning? Where are you? Is your commitment lame? Are you hesitating? Are you paralyzed by indecision? Someday I'll give it all to the Lord. Well, let me tell you, let this Easter be your sold out Sunday. Amen? Let today be your sold out Sunday. And so here's what happens. He tells them, he asks them a question, and there's deafening silence. They're not ready yet. Deafening silence. And so Elijah's proposal is this. You guys need a spiritual smackdown to see who, whose God will answer by fire. So I find it interesting that whatever the real God is, you're supposed to follow Him. Listen, doctrine changes life. When you really believe the resurrection, then you will follow the resurrected Lord. If He's God, follow Him. If He's God, follow Him. But notice... It's going to be the God who answers by fire. And so Israel, Israel finally speaks, but only says two words. Good word. Fair test. Let's see what happens. And so Elijah, having conf confronted Israel, now challenges the false prophets to prove their claims. So he has Israel... He's confronted them, and now he turns to the prophets, and he says, I'm going to challenge you to prove your claims. Look at verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves, and prepare it first. 
for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. The first thing I want you to see is the surrender of the advantage by Yahweh. He surrenders the advantage. The majority, he is confident, Elijah and his God are confident that the majority will be proven wrong. Let me throw this out to you one more time. The majority in the Bible is almost always wrong. The majority, so that's okay. We live in times of apostasy. We're in the minority. That's okay because the majority is usually proven wrong. And then notice this. He's letting them go first too as a strategic maneuver because if he goes first and God answers, what can the prophets of Baal claim? They can claim it was Baal. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't your God. That was our God. Our God's the storm God. Our God's the God with lightning in His hand. So if He goes first, and He knows God's the true God, and He'll answer, well, then they'll say, no, that was Baal, and you're right back to where they are. So instead, He says, you guys go first. And here's the thing. The true God doesn't need an advantage. The true God doesn't need help from men. The true God doesn't need help from you to accomplish His purposes. And so He gives away the... He surrenders the advantage. But now, let's look at verses 26 through 29. Then they took... So they took Him up on it. And they're like, hey, we get to go first. We're, we're in the majority. This is good. Let's go. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. And it came about noon that Elijah mocked or taunted them and said, Call out with a loud voice. You know, in other words, you got to be louder, for he is a God. Gods need to be awakened. Gods need to be, uh, that, that you need to get their attention. They're like moms and dads. You know, when you were a kid, you'd grab your dad's face and say, I want ice cream. This is the kind of God you have. You've got to get his attention. And so he says this, call in a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he's occupied. Or he's gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they're like, man, you got a lot of good advice. So, verse 28, so they cried with a loud voice, and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And it came about when midday was passed that they raved. That is an ecstatic frenzy frothing, demonic craziness until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. So notice, the true God surrenders the advantage, but what we're to take away from what we just read, the silence of the no God, which is Baal. The true God gives away the advantage. The no God, there is silence. The mighty Baal, the God of fertility, is proven to be impotent and mute. I mean, you've got to understand, this was, all, this was really 
sexualized. This is this God of fertility. And he's, he's infertile. He's impotent. And he's mute. So notice, the 850 prophets of Baal go for it, and they go for it for a long time. Because you know these gods, you've got to earn their favor. You've got to earn their attention. You've got to work for what you want from a god of man's making. And so for all day they called on his name, or at least till to the afternoon. And notice they use lots and lots of words. They just keep repeating repetition, 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 repetition. Lots of leap, leaping. And guess what? This leaping is the same word for limping. So you got this lame commitment. Look at these guys, and they're lame too. Just leaping around, trying to get God's, their God's attention. And yet from morning to noon, no voice is heard, and no one answers. Elijah taunts them with all the things that Baal is known to do. Here's what's fascinating. He's not pulling these out of a hat. False gods are typically humans that are just like Marvel Avengers. Okay, they're just humans that are a leg up on humans. And so these are all things that Baal was known to do. Go on a journey, he won't hear you, he dies, and then he has to be resurrected by another god. And this one thing where it says maybe he's uh, gone aside, some Hebrew scholars think this means he's on the toilet and he can't be bothered. All of us men can understand that, right? Okay, I won't go any farther with that. So here's what he says. Maybe you guys speak in a louder voice. And that made me think of this. You know, maybe, see, a false god is like that Alexa sitting in your living room. You got to speak up to it. You got to speak to it, and then it'll give you what you want. That, you know, and that's a little application there to think about. Okay. You know, do, are we talking more to technology than we do to the living God? Something to think about. And are we asking more from technology? Then we ask from the living God. So he says, maybe he's gone aside, maybe he's on a journey, maybe he's asleep and he needs to be re- awakened. And so the 850 prophets of Baal go for it even more. They spend more time. They go from noon to evening. And they use more words. And they use louder voices. And now they get a static. It's a rave. It's a ritual rave. And they start cutting themselves. I gave you a picture. Those are men in the Philippines who right now, I don't know what the time gap is, yesterday or today. Right now, there are, and it's, well, I, I take that back. It's on Friday. It's on Good Friday. So these are uh, 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 pe- men who are cutting their foreheads, cutting their backs, and they pass the knives around. And, it, and it's causing an epidemic of, uh, of an infection, and they couldn't figure out what all these men had in common until they saw one guy's back, and they're like, oh. And then all these guys that had this infection was because they were all doing passing this knife around. And it's the same idea. People are still doing... This isn't something that's just in the past. It's in the present. Men and women doing harm to themselves as a cry for help to a false god that won't answer. And we're still offering children in sacrifice through abortion to the false God of our own pleasure and our own convenience. All this stuff is going on in our culture. And we need to realize that. And so from noon to evening and no voice 
is heard and no one answers and no one pays attention until they're spent all day long. And now what's going to happen? Baal has been proved to be a no God, no voice, no hearing, no paying attention. He's been proved to a no God to be a no God. But what about Elijah's God? Let's see. Number four, the vindication of the spiritual smackdown. The vindication has come. So let's take a look at it. Verses 30 through 35. Look in your Bibles, verse 30 through 35. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. There's that repeated. And so all the people came near to him. Oh, there's hope. Grace is drawing them to the true God. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took not ten stones to represent northern kingdom, not two stones to represent the southern kingdom, but twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Not the false Israel of the apostate Ahab, but the true Israel. And so with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood, and he cut the ox in pieces, and he laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Soak it. Soak it good. And there was a a live spring near this site, And there was water available, though it was a drought. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. This thing is soaked down. What is going on here? Well, let me give you four aspects of this, and this is the heart of the lesson. Watch what's going on, and you can tell it. This is the most space that is given. In the prophets of Baal, it was all about what they did. In the, in the altar and the, the worship of, of Elijah, it was all about what God was going to do. So notice, first of all, the Lord's mediator calls the people to come near to him and his sacrifice. The Lord's mediator says, come to me as God's messenger. Come to the sacrifice that I'm preparing. This is grace through faith. God is coming near to an undeserving people. And he says, come near to me. Trust me. Come near to me. Number two, the Lord's mediator prepares an acceptable sacrifice To the Lord for His people. The Lord's mediator prepares an acceptable sacrifice. What does He do? Verse 30. He repairs what is broken. There's good news for you this morning. What is broken, God can repair. What is broken, God can repair. What has been abandoned, God can bring back. What has been destroyed, God can resurrect. What has been forsaken and forgotten, God can bring to remembrance. He repairs what is broken. And then in verse 31, he rebuilds what was torn down. God can rebuild your life today. You don't have to leave here a failure. You don't have to leave here limping between two opinions. You don't have to leave here with a lame commitment. God rebuilds what is torn down. And then finally, 
He requires that the sacrifice be one that's acceptable to God. And you know what a sacrifice that's acceptable to God? It's one that man can't take credit for. That's what all the water's about. The water is there's only one person that can do this. An acceptable sacrifice on behalf of sinners is one that only God can do. And yet he does it through his human mediator. Do you see where we're going with this? It's one that only God could set on fire by grace through faith. It's one where only He could get the glory. So what happens? Verse 36. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. In other words, where God appointed worship down in Jerusalem, down at the temple, it was time for sacrifice down there. And He's saying, hey, we're supposed to worship according to God's word not our imaginations. And so he says that Elijah the prophet came near. Now, who's he coming near to? This time he's coming near to God. He's interceding. He's bringing the people, undeserving people, who don't even want to speak up, that haven't yet confessed, that don't deserve God's grace. And he's interceding and bringing them before the Lord. And he says this, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Today, let it be known that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Big theme in Elijah. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. He only says it twice. He says it for sincerity. He says it for emphasis that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. That's faith. It hasn't happened yet. Isn't that cool? That's intercession. And so what happens? The Lord's, inter- the Lord's mediator intercedes that the fame of the Lord's name would be made known. He intercedes that the fame of the Lord's name would be made known. And he does it to two people. He says, Lord, let all these people know that you are God, I am your messenger, and my message is your word. Vindicate me before the false prophets. But then he prays for God's people. And he says, these people need a revelation of you too, but they need a transformation. Their heart needs to be transformed. So what happens? Verse 38, here you go. Are you ready? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. It consumed everything. Is that just too awesome? What happened? The Lord and His mediator are vindicated before all the people by, con- by a consuming fire falling from heaven. A consuming fire. Do you know in Hebrews it says our God is a consuming fire? And do you understand how gracious what you're seeing is? Who deserved that fire to fall on them? Israel. The false pride. Instead, it falls on the sacrifice. The sacrifice is a substitute for the sinners. The fire consumes all that is offered to them. So, boom. God answers by fire. He is God. Number five, the reaction to the spiritual smackdown. What's the reaction? Well, here's the reaction. It's in verses 39 and 40. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They said, 
The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That's basically Elijah's name. What's Elijah's name? Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is my God. And they're saying, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, twice for emphasis and sincerity. And then Elijah said to them, because the gospel has bad news. It has good news, but it also has bad news. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And you have a picture on the site. There's a statue there today of Elijah with his sword drawn about to behead a prophet of Baal. Now here's what happens. The reaction is twofold. Repentance by heart change. Repentance by heart change. And retribution or reckoning by holy condemnation. They saw the fire. They fell on their faces and they confessed. Their heart had been transformed by the revelation and by the sacrifice. So here's what I want to end with. What does Easter with Elijah teach us? What does it teach us? And I know that sentence a mouthful, but hey, we just covered a whole chapter. So we're just covering the whole redemptive story. So let's look at it. The Lord himself will settle who the true God is by vindicating his chosen servant with an acceptable sacrifice and a miraculous vindication, which today the ultimate vindication is the resurrection. Is that just not cool? That Elijah was just a foretaste of what God has done in the cross, the acceptable sacrifice, and in the resurrection. So if you don't get anything else, get this. And you can look up these verses. They're wonderful. This is a great devotion for the rest of this week. But here it is. See what God has done for us as sinners in the acceptable sacrifice of His Son. See, God has prepared Himself a sacrifice. And He calls out to you today, Come near and see what Christ has done. That was Good Friday. Come near and see what Christ has done for sinners. God Himself has prepared the sacrifice. God Himself is the sacrifice. Then, if you see it for what it is, fall on your face in repentance and say, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. And then call on the Lord in order to be saved. Romans 10, if you believe in the heart that God has raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh, you shall be saved. Isn't that beautiful? And it doesn't matter whether you're in Syria, Sri Lanka, or here in Gladstone or Kansas City, call on Him. And then serve the Lord with a heart that has been radically changed. He said, they said, your God's Yahweh? Okay, put it into action. Grab a prophet of Baal and bring him to me. And he said, don't let him get away. Why? Because this was a place where you could easily hide. You could run ten feet and hide in a grotto or something. And then finally, warn others of the coming judgment and the good news of salvation. In Revelation, fire is going to fall. An eternal fire of eternal condemnation. Are you with me? And it says in Revelation 19 that the same Jesus who died, rose, and is seated at the right hand is going to return with a sword in his mouth and slay the unbeliever. 
slay those with lame commitment. See, all this is coming. And so the good news is this. You can get saved and you can be sold out before that happens. The bad news is it's going to happen. And you know what? True believers accept both parts of that message. And true believers share both parts of that message. And so, is this just not the most awesome passage? And do we not serve the most awesome God? A God of grace, holiness, judgment, mercy, it's all there. And mercy, mercy, tons of mercy. He is coming near us today. We need to come near to Him with a humble submission by grace through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, man, I am so rejoicing in who you are today. And yet my heart is burdened, Lord. Burdened for mediocrity. Burdened for apathy that I see in my own heart, but I see in a generation that are struggling for identity and looking for it in all the wrong places. And Father, I pray. I pray and I intercede to you who is the acceptable sacrifice, the living Lord, and I pray, Lord, that we would understand that you have been vindicated as the one true God. And may we accept you, serve you, and may we be sold out even in the worst of times. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, in our risen Lord.